After the tremendous success of his debut novel, Carrie, in 1974, and following that with the publishing of four additional novels, Stephen and Tabitha moved to Bangor, Maine in 1978. One day while taking a walk, Stephen came upon a bridge that brought to mind the Norwegian folklore story, The Billy Goat's Gruff, De Tredik in Brisse, in Norwegian, collected by Peter Christian Asbjørnsen and Jorgen Moe in the Norske Folk Eventyr. He wondered what would happen if a troll-like creature lived under the bridge he was encountering, a troll that inhabited the local sewage system and terrorized the town. He began writing the novel in 1980, taking five years to complete the tremendous study in horror. During those five years, he would ride a wave of success, publishing other books and movies along the way. On the flip side, he would meet several low points as he developed an alcohol and drug dependency. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, productivity, and shape-shifting monsters. I'm your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and on this episode, we explore Stephen King's life around the time of writing the novel, It. Quote, Talent is cheaper than table salt. What separates the talented individual from the successful one is a lot of hard work." End quote. Stephen King started writing when he was about six or seven years old, copying panels out of comic books and then making up his own stories. In particular, much like Ben Denbro would do in It, King can remember being home from school with tonsillitis and writing stories in bed to pass the time. Like many artists, film was a major influence. He loved movies from the very start, particularly recalling the time his mother took him to Radio City Music Hall to see Bambi. The size of the place, the forest fire in the movie, it all made a profound impression. And when he began to write, he had a tendency to write in images because that was all he knew at the time. In 1959, at age 12, after he, his brother, and mother had moved back to Maine, he attended a little one-room schoolhouse just up the street from their house. All the grade levels were in one room. However, what he seems to concisely remember is what was referred to as the shit house in the back and how it stank. No library in their town. Each week, the state would send a big green van called the Bookmobile. One could get three books from the Bookmobile, and they didn't care which books, meaning that one was not limited to checking out kids' books. Up until then, what he had been reading was Nancy Drew, The Hardy Boys, and similar literature. The first adult books he picked out were the Ed McBain 87th Precinct novels, and the one he read first the cops go up to question a woman in a tenement apartment standing there in her undergarment. And the cops tell her to put some clothes on. Instead, she grabs her breast through her undergarment and squeezes it at them and says, In your eye, cop. Something immediately clicked in his head. 
he thought, that's real. That could really happen. Well, that would be the harsh and immediate end of the Hardy Boys in his life. In fact, that was the end of all juvenile fiction for him. Everything from then on would revolve around adult fiction. Not knowing and not being told about what popular fiction was at the time, he began to read a wide range of books. He read The Call of the Wild and The Sea Wolf one week, and then Peyton Place the next week, and then a week after that, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. Whatever came to mind, whatever landed in his hand, he would read. And when he read Sea Wolf, he didn't understand that it was Jack London's critique of Nietzsche. Upon reading McTeague, he didn't know that it was naturalism, Frank Norris's way of saying, you can never win, the system always beats you. He did, however, understand them on some level, a level which fascinated him. Now we fast forward to life with Tabitha, who'd been one of the first to read Stephen's short stories in college. At one point, she loaned him her own typewriter and refused to let him take a higher-paying job that would mean less time to write. She was also the one who discovered draft pages of what would become Carrie tossed in the trash can. Retrieving them, she ordered him to keep working on the idea. During the years 1980 to 1985, the time period of the writing of it, he also produced and published Cujo, Dark Tower One, The Gunslinger, Christine, Cycle of the Werewolf, The Eyes of the Dragon, The Talisman, co-written with fellow writer Peter Straub, and Pet Cemetery, which you can learn all about on episode 7 of our show. Add to this impressive list the three novels, Roadwork, The Running Man, and Thinner, written under his pseudonym, Richard Bachman. While this period of time was one teeming with great productivity and success, it was also significantly marred by the death of King's mother shortly after the release of Carrie. By developing a serious drinking problem, King descended down a spiral of depression, even admitting that he was drunk while delivering the eulogy at his mother's funeral. Drinking led to drugs, with cocaine being a favorite as it helped him keep working long after his body and mind begged him to shut it down. Now, back to 1978. One evening, he ventured alone to retrieve his car from the repair shop and came across an old wooden bridge. Humped and oddly quaint, he recalled. As mentioned, walking across the bridge caused King to recall the story of Three Billy Goats Gruff. The idea of transplanting the tale's scenario into a real-life context interested him. He wondered, what would he do if a troll called out to him from under the bridge, saying, Who is trip-trapping upon my bridge? All of a sudden... He felt an urge to write a novel about a real troll under a real bridge. Now, he was further inspired by a line from American poet Marianne Moore, imaginary gardens with real toads in them, which in his mind came out as real trolls in imaginary gardens. 
Stephen would return to the concept two years later, at which time, somewhere during 1980, he received a $3 million advance from Viking to write the book. Having witnessed the success of his prior novels, they decided to bet big on him. He gradually began to accumulate ideas and thoughts, particularly the concept of weaving the narratives of children and the adults they would become, finding influence in the mythology and history surrounding the construction of the sewer system in Bangor, Maine. During this time, in interviews, he would often be asked, what happened in your childhood that makes you want to write those terrible things? Now, since he couldn't think of any real answer to that, he decided to write something akin to a final exam on horror and put in all the monsters that everyone was afraid of as a kid. He wanted to put in Frankenstein, the werewolf, the vampire, the mummy, and all the giant creatures that ate up New York in the old B-movies. He concluded that it would be his final novel about monsters, and because of this, he wanted to bring on all the monsters one last time. All these influences would coalesce into it, the story about a shape-shifting monster that takes the form of its victims' fears and haunts the town of Derry, Maine. The character would be an ancient, trans-dimensional evil entity who preys upon the children, and sometimes adults, of Derry roughly every 27 years, using a variety of powers that include the ability to shapeshift, manipulate reality, and go unnoticed by adults. Now, during the course of the story, it primarily appears in the form of Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Now, King stated in a 2013 interview that he came up with the idea for Pennywise after asking himself what children feared more than anything else in the world. To him, the answer was none other than clowns. He was also trying to recapture his own childhood, in particular how it had been to be a child himself in the 1950s. Concerning why he wrote so many books about children during that period, well, he would explain that that was for a couple of reasons. Being fortunate to sell his writings fairly young, getting married young, and having children at a younger age than most, he had been given the opportunity to observe the kids more than many of his peers. He learned to know his kids inside out. He was in touch with the anger and exhaustion one can feel as a child, and naturally, those things went into the books. Doing revisions of the book while shooting his film, Maximum Overdrive, he would be living quite a hectic life, which was very much fueled by drugs and alcohol. He would wake up in the morning, go to the set, shoot footage, watch dailies, then return to his hotel and drink and drug his way into the night while revising it until he would collapse into sleep. Ultimately, he and his editor would excise 50 pages of material before the publishing of the novel. Upon its release, it was a huge success. It was listed as the best-selling book in America in 1986 by Publishers Weekly and won the British Fantasy Award in 1987, among many other nominations. In spite of this success, 
And maybe because he was going through a strained period in his life, King would call it a very badly constructed book, describing his writing as the literary equivalent of a Big Mac and fries from McDonald's. <laughs> wow. His addiction seriously affected him throughout the remainder of the decade up until the late 1980s when his friends and family staged an intervention confronting him about his problem. As detailed in his 2000 memoir, On Writing, he revealed that he barely remembers writing his 1981 novel, Cujo. It was a frightening admittance that led those close to him to highlight his addictions, presenting him with everything from cigarette butts and beer cans to cocaine, volume, and mouthwash. After giving up drinking and drugs, the coming decades would give way to dozens of novels, short stories, and screenplays, cementing him as one of the true masters of the horror and suspense genre. As usual, let me leave you with a final quote from the master of monsters himself. I was taking a walk one day when I happened to spot a little girl on the corner of my street. She was about five years old. She was sitting in the dirt at the edge of the road, talking to herself or to invisible friends and drawing in the dirt with a stick. And I thought, if I did that, somebody would come along and say, there's a grown man sitting in the dirt, talking to himself, to people who aren't there and drawing with a stick, which is very close to what I do for a living, <laughs> what people pay me to do, end quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Amor Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Christo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Lemore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden. <laughs>